You are tuned to KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. It's 6 p.m. Thursday, January 20th, 2022. I'm Joyce Miller, and this is the KVMR Evening News. Coming up after the BBC headlines, a federal judge has ended his five-year stint supervising PG&E's criminal probation by blasting the utility as a wildfire menace and suggesting it be split in two. In other fire news from the California report, some experts want to radically thin our high-density forests to help fend off fires and drought. After regional news and weather, it's Bravehearts and an essay from Molly Fisk. This is the California Report, and I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Despite signs that the Omicron wave is starting to ease in California, hospitals across the state are still struggling with an influx of COVID-19 patients. More than 15,000 people are currently hospitalized in the state who are confirmed to have COVID-19. San Francisco and Sacramento counties have reached pandemic highs in terms of the number of COVID patients that are in the hospital. That strain is also affecting emergency workers, as ambulances in some parts of the state have had to wait hours to transfer patients to emergency rooms. At a hearing in Sacramento yesterday, Dr. Clayton Kazan, medical director at the Los Angeles County Fire Department, told the Assembly Committee on Emergency Management that the situation just isn't sustainable. We're in a disaster. It's been going on for two years. It's a slow rolling disaster, I understand, but it is a disaster. We need to respond accordingly. If there was a plane crash, it would never be acceptable for a hospital to hold up ambulances and leave patients in the flaming wreckage waiting for transport just because they felt overwhelmed. These delays are not a new problem, but they've been exacerbated during the pandemic and particularly during the Omicron surge, as more and more hospital staff are testing positive, leaving many facilities extremely short-staffed. Several speakers during the hearing suggested fining hospitals for failing to receive patients more quickly or giving them economic incentives to do so. Some also suggested that nurses at hospitals could ease the burden by filling some of the staffing gaps and helping with paperwork requirements. But the California Nurses Association pushed back on that idea, saying they're already struggling with staffing as it is, and this would create more burnout. A new bill introduced in Sacramento would increase fines health insurers have to pay when they break the law by 10 times current amounts. The goal is to make sure patients get the care they're entitled to. Here's KQED health correspondent April Dimboski. California has some of the strongest patient protections in the country, but the penalties for violating them are often pretty weak. Policy advocate Diana Douglas says it's cheaper for health insurers to pay the fine than to pay for the care they're supposed to cover. Time and again, over and over, health plans are violating the standards and just paying the penalties instead of doing the right thing. Her group, Health Access, is sponsoring the new bill. It would increase minimum fines from $2,500 to $25,000. Health insurance companies declined to comment. For The California Report, I'm April Dimboski. Support for The California Report comes from Stanford Medicine, protecting your health and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits. StanfordHealthCare.org slash Adapting Care. Eric and Wendy Schmidt whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Futures, focused on finding exceptional people and helping them do more for others together on the web at schmidtfutures.com. And Paint Care, 
Now with 800 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at paintcare.org. The federal judge who's overseen Pacific Gas and Electric's probation for the last five years says the company continues to be a wildfire menace to Californians. KQED's Dan Brecky reports. U.S. District Judge William Alsop issued his comments to mark the end next week of PG&E's period of court supervision following a felony conviction connected to the San Bruno pipeline tragedy. The judge blasted the company's safety record, noting that 113 people have died in fires the company's started since its probation began. Alsop said some of the company's safety problems can be traced to its reliance on contractors to do crucial tree trimming work and what he called its past determination to keep power flowing through lines even in dangerous circumstances. In a statement, PG&E said it has become a safer company during probation and is committed to the goal of ending catastrophic wildfires. For the California Report, I'm Dan Brecky. California's forests will need to look a lot different if they're going to survive the challenges of a warming world. New research out of the University of California and the U.S. Forest Service provides a roadmap. KQED science reporter Danielle Venton has some of the details. Many of us think a healthy forest looks like a thick stand of green trees. But Malcolm North, research scientist with the Forest Service, says looking at data from as far back as the early 1800s shows that's not how these forests evolved to be. The thing that came out that's very striking is that the forests were just incredibly low density, much, much different than the forests we often see when we go up into the Sierra Nevadas now. Because of mild, frequent fires occurring naturally or set by indigenous peoples, the trees had lots of space. North and his co-authors say that means the trees were not in competition, either for water, sunlight, or soil. They were robust and able to fend off fires, droughts, and pests. To return to that, the change needs to be dramatic. A typical acre in the Sierra today might have about 400 trees. 200 years ago, it had just 20 to 30 trees. It means so few trees that you feel like, um, you know, it's, it's a wide open place almost with a few trees in there. But that's making those trees very, very strong. And in an uncertain, stressful future, that's what you need. North says the work means removing small trees. As to how the work should be done? The size of the problem is so huge that I think we need to use any tool we can get. And if that includes beavers on crack or people going out and chewing the trees down themselves, I don't care. For the California Report, I'm Danielle Venton. San Francisco Mayor London Breed's new proposal to loosen surveillance camera rules as part of her plan to crack down on crime is facing competition from another measure on the local June ballot. KQD's Rachel Myro explains. As it stands, San Francisco law allows police to use real-time video in emergencies involving the threat of death or serious injury and to ask permission from the Board of Supervisors for scenarios like retail theft and open-air drug markets. Tracy Rosenberg, who heads the nonprofit Media Alliance, says the rules aren't burdensome. Who's going to have access to the videos? Where will they be stored? What can they use them for? These don't seem to us like sort of crazy questions it should be impossible to put on a piece of paper. Five supervisors appear to agree they've filed a ballot proposal of their own that more or less affirms the existing ordinance. For The California Report, I'm Rachel Myro.
And that is the California Report for Thursday, January 20th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez. We'll talk tomorrow. In state and regional news, Nevada County Public Health reports 192 new confirmed COVID-19 cases today. 28 people are hospitalized, six of them in intensive care. 1,779 cases are active. Reuters News Service reports that the rains that soaked California in recent weeks have been welcome news for endangered coho salmon. Preston Brown, Director of Watershed Conservation for Salmon Protection and Watershed Network, also known as SPAWN, told Reuters, We've seen fish in places that they haven't been for almost 25 years. California received more precipitation from October to December than in the previous 12 months, according to the National Weather Service. The rain and snow arrived in time for the November to January spawning season in the Tomales Bay watershed north of San Francisco, enabling some fish to reach tributaries to Lagunitas Creek at least 13 miles inland in Marin County. Some fish have been spotted a mile upstream from where the San Geronimo Creek had been dammed until little more than a year ago, experts say. The rain could easily be a mere pause in the state's epic drought. The state is likely to need several wet years in a row to replenish reservoirs. So far this fall and winter, the fish are benefiting, laying eggs in nests where babies will hatch and spend most of their juvenile life. They will then swim out to the ocean as adults, later returning to the same area to spawn. SFGate.com reports today that a new bill introduced this week seeks to control an explosion of feral pigs in California by minimizing hunting restrictions on wild hogs and banning the release of pigs into the wild. In recent decades, the population of feral pigs in California has rapidly increased. Some wags are calling this phenomenon a ticking swine bomb. The surge in the wild pig population is causing wide-ranging problems, from ransacked lawns in San Jose to herds of pigs running rampant through suburban Southern California streets. One San Jose City Council member even proposed allowing bows and arrows to hunt them. If approved, Senate Bill 856, introduced by State Senator Bill Dodd of Napa, would allow an owner or tenant in possession of a $15 wild pig validation to kill any feral pig destroying property or injuring, molesting, pursuing, worrying, or killing livestock. The California Department of Fish and Wildlife already allows year-round pig hunting with a hunting license or tag, but the bill seeks to eliminate the need for those so-called depredation permits. It would also ban anyone from releasing a hog, boar, pig, or swine to live in the wild. According to State Senator Dodd, wild pigs can now be found in 56 of California's 58 counties. That includes Nevada County. While there may be hundreds of thousands of pigs running wild in California, they are not often seen. The highly intelligent animals are excellent at hiding and, if shot at, quickly learn to avoid human predators. Though rare, wild hogs can also be a danger to humans. There have been five fatal hog attacks in the United States since record-keeping began in 1825. Turning to regional weather, the 10-day forecast seems to be stuck on repeat. Mild and sunny, with highs around 60 and lows in the low 40s, continuing through the next week. Gusty winds are expected to develop Friday, particularly in the Sierra. This evening in Nevada City and Grass Valley, partly cloudy with a low of 45. Friday will be much the same, with a daytime high of 59 and a low of 43.
In Truckee tonight, partly cloudy with a low of 18 degrees. Friday in Truckee, sunny with a high of 35 and a low of 19, with northeast winds of up to 20 miles per hour. A lake wind advisory is in effect for the greater Lake Tahoe area from 7 a.m. Friday to 4 a.m. Saturday, with possible gusts of up to 40 miles per hour and waves of 2 to 4 feet. In Sacramento this evening, partly cloudy with a low of 41. Friday in Sacramento, partly cloudy with a high in the mid-60s and a low of 45, with winds of up to 25 miles per hour. Continuing its Hospitality House series, Bravehearts examines how the agency supports people in the sometimes scary weeks and months after they transition out of shelter and into a new world of more stable housing. Welcome to this edition of Bravehearts, where we hope to increase your awareness and understanding of what homelessness looks like and some of the many organizations working on solutions to improve the homeless crisis. We are your hosts, William Wallace and Betty Louise, and these are the Bravehearts. This is the fourth segment in our Hospitality House series with Tyson Powers and Joe Nake, and I was fascinated to learn that Hospitality House services do not end with housing. We work what's called along what's called the continuum of care. Everything from street outreach, meeting people where they're at, to finally being housed, and everything in between, all the services in between. So it only makes sense that we are on that entire continuum, seeing people through the entire process. Mm -hmm. And the process is, it can go back and forth. Um, it's not always you do A, then B, then C, then D. There, there are miracles that sometimes it does happen that way, but we have to be able to provide services along that entire continuum, ultimately ending in not only housing, but post-housing. We also have a post-housing manager case managers so that when somebody is housed, we don't just say, okay, best of luck, you know, you've been homeless for 10 years, figure out life skills. We continue to follow them for an amount of time after that six months, a year. I, yeah. We work with people for 18 months after they've right. been housed to make sure they don't return to homelessness. Because getting housed is easy compared to staying housed. Because, mm -hmm. you know, talking with our folks, the scariest time is those first 72 hours in a new place, especially if you're coming from a shelter where you have you know, 60 other people around you to going to no other people around you. The silence can be frightening. And having that post-housing person there to support them through that is tremendous. Yeah. I spoke with, with a homeless man. He was living in Pioneer Park for about eight years, and then he got a barn to live in. I mean, it's mm -hmm. not a huge thing, but he pays rent. Mm -hmm. And I talked with him after he got the place. I talked with him before and after, and he he said he's thinking about going back out to the woods yeah. because of all the responsibility yes. and the stress. Yeah. It's a lot. Yeah. It was fascinating. Yeah. And we see that with our adult reentry grant program. You know, when you go from a place where you know you don't necessarily have the responsibilities of, of paying rent, paying bills, doing all yeah. that, having all of that, going to a place to where all of a sudden now life on life's terms is happening, that's where the support really comes in, not only preparing folks for that, but also continue to support them afterwards um, and building in those that social connectedness. You know, a lot of a lot of the folks we work with have, you know, reduced all of their social capital. 
you or I or Tyson become homeless, lose our jobs tomorrow, I might be able to fall on a family member or a friend. Whereas some of our folks, especially with if it's intergenerational homelessness or they don't have family to fall back on, you know, how do you build in those soft supports? Um, and that's that social connectedness is a huge piece of it. Another thing we try to work with our folks with. Yeah, because, you know, for from me, you know, the social connectedness part is huge because if your whole social network is the shelter, you're going to continue to return to that shelter for that familiar comfortability like we all have. You know, we all go home for the holidays that have family. We all go home to our families and that's comfortable. I mean, and that's an excellent point that he brings up is that it is. It's, it's a home. It's their home. Wherever a person is, is your home, whether it's a barn, a tent, mm-hmm. the shelter, that's home for everybody, a car. And we really, I mean, that's one thing that when I talk with people about, you know, people experiencing homelessness is that we're talking about humans. We're talking about people that are living the best life that they can with the circumstances that they're under and how can we assist with that or at least guide. Can you give us an idea of what it's like when you walk into these camps? It's different every time is what I'll say. It's amazing to me how industrious human beings are. I've seen folks set up, uh, have a nice camp set up that I've walked into. It's like, this is pretty nice. And you've got the chairs, you've got a little structure built. Um, I've seen where it's strictly a lean-to, maybe a tarp and sleeping on the ground and everything in between. Mm-hmm. Walking into a camp, the first thing I try to remember is that just what I said, I'm walking into somebody's home. So we're always announcing, hey, you know, from a long distance, hey, is anybody home? Because our folks out there are victimized. You have to realize that, that... Their possessions are all they have. Everything they carry with them is what they own. And to lose any of that would be, you know, that's something that's, that breeds a lot of paranoia and a lot of um, anxiety, obviously. So I want to be very respectful when you go in. Hey, hospitality house, is anybody home? Is it okay if I come in? And then just seeing how folks survive out there. In weather like this, when it's cold and rainy and wet, and people just trying to keep their dry clothes, uh, when it's 100 degrees outside, folks, I've seen people suffer from dehydration, and every, it's very difficult. There's not running water out in the woods, you know. So making sure that folks have you know their basic needs met. And another thing that I really and I like telling the story because it was an eye-opening experience for me. I remember walking into a camp, a couple of different camps, and there was a lot of garbage on the ground. It was kind of strewn about, and I always, that always baffled me a little bit. I said, well, why, why just throw it on the ground? I don't understand that. One day I go out to my garbage and a bear got into it and the trash was strewn around in a big circle and I looked at it and I said, this looks like the camp I was just in yesterday. Then it dawned on me, the folks that we serve aren't just throwing garbage on the ground. They're, there's not dumpsters out there. They might be bagging up their trash, but in the middle of the night a raccoon, a bear or something gets into it and it gets spread around everywhere. It's not that it's disrespectful or anything like that. It's the circumstances. Thank you for joining us today. Our hope is this segment has opened your heart and mind. Be well and be kind. This project was made possible with support from California Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Please visit calhum.org. And now, Molly Fisk. Molly Fisk, Observations from a Working Poet. I don't mean to bore you completely with power outage adventures, 
but I just have to crow for a minute about the fact that I cleaned out my refrigerator and freezer today for the first time in 15 years. Maybe I should have given you fastidious listeners a trigger warning about this, but it's too late now and I apologize. Before you gag into your sleeves, let me say that I'd cleaned this unit many times, but always while it was running and I was working around the idea that a spill could be wiped up in just a minute with the door open and cold air wafting expensively into my face and then the rest of the kitchen. This is both true and untrue. Most of the spill gets wiped up, 99.7% of it approximately. But if you add up those 0.3% over 15 years, well, you can imagine. And you'll have to imagine because I have no earthly idea what I was sponging out of there. It looks sort of like chicken broth and sort of like cottage cheese when it begins to separate into curds and whey. Again, I apologize. The icebox, which is what we call these things in my family, we are a vintage lot, had been out of power for five days. The ice cream had been eaten, the chicken breasts cooked, and everything that can be refrozen later, like butter, parmesan, ratatouille I made in October, coffee beans, and whatnot, was outside in the snow in plastic bags keeping cool. My ice chest is down in the shed, and it's too snowy for me to go get it. I was taught to start at the top when cleaning. A quarter inch of strange sopping mess in the freezer, the scrubbing of the inexplicable marks on its wire shelf, a fine hand with the rubber seals around the door. It was beautiful. Then I proceeded to the icebox itself. Two shelves, two platformy things, and three drawers. One for root vegetables, one for fruit, and one that's supposed to be for meat, but I keep batteries and pine nuts in there. Soap, warm water, sponges made by my friend Janine that you can put in the washing machine. I sang a few Christmas carols to cheer myself along, and also the Marseillaise at one point when I wanted to stop. One thing about the natural world is it's wily. After five unelectrified days, what do you know but mold was trying to grow in there? Not very much, but I mean really, how revolting. I spoke to it sternly and scrubbed it out. Meanwhile, Jack in India, always fond of participating, kept trying to climb in and see what was going on. This slowed me down a little. Deep cleaning seems like a terrible waste of writing time. Without this outage, I would never have thought to attack the icebox. I bought it used, so it's not going to last another 15 years, probably not even three. This is likely its only true spa treatment. I hope it's happy now. If we ever get our power back, I'm going to enjoy thinking about it, gleaming quietly away in there, sheltering the romaine and potatoes, the clementines, the maple syrup, and gray poupon. And you know me. I'm going to feel incredibly, unabashedly smug. Award-winning poet Molly Fisk writes, coaches, and teaches writing in California's Sierra Nevada foothills. You can reach her at mollyfisk.com. This program is produced at the studios of KVMR-FM, Nevada City, California. Funding is provided by Harmony Books of Downtown Nevada City and KVMR with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. That's our newscast. Coming up next at 6.30, an all-new episode of Money Matters with Mark Cunaberti. 
At 7 p.m. on Democracy Now!, Amy Goodman talks to Ralph Nader and Katrina Vandenhuvel about Joe Biden's first year as president. Then KVMR returns to the music you love, Jazz Workshop with Derek Washington at 8, followed at 10 by Road Dog Radio with DJ Llama Socks. KVMR Community Radio gets support from Harmony Books of Nevada City, locally owned for over 25 years, next to the Chamber of Commerce at 130 Main Street, open Monday through Saturday, 10 to 5.30, Sundays, 11 to 4. Harmony Books carries thousands of books, including local authors. And Milkman Toner Company, providing local hometown service for network printers, copiers, and scanners, carrying environmentally safe remanufactured toner cartridges with printer support, serving Northern California counties, also San Francisco to Lake Tahoe, milkmancompany.com. This is Joyce Miller signing off. We'll be back tomorrow at 6 with the KVMR Evening News. 